Welcome to The Alex Tremble Show, where we share the strategies and secrets you need to know in order to successfully increase your influence, build strategic networks, and advance in your career. An award-winning speaker, author, and leadership coach, Alex brings executive leaders from across the world to share their inspirational stories and insights to help you become an exceptional public servant while also reaching your career goals. Without further ado, here's your host, Alex D. Tremble. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show. And if you are one of the thousands of individuals who listen to this podcast on a weekly and biweekly basis, I'd like to say thank you for joining us here again. Thank you for continuing to join me and everyone on this journey of self-development and leadership development. And if this is your first, first podcast episode that you're listening to, welcome and again thank you for joining us on this journey and i'm hoping that this is not the last time i get to interact with you via this podcast today is somewhat of an interesting and special day it is april 21st 2001 that means that we are slightly over one year since the united states went on a shutdown due to the coronavirus pandemic as I reflected on where we are as a people, as a country, and the, the challenges that leaders have had to overcome since this corona pandemic has started, I, I thought it would be extremely appropriate to share a conversation that I had last year, last November, with a phenomenal woman who is leading and doing great things within her community. See, this woman Dr. Myshika Roberts is the health commissioner of the city of Columbus, Ohio. And, and what she has done to save lives within her community is, is nothing less than, than, than awesome, phenomenal, and, and, and beautiful, if I can use that word. So over this conversation, yes, please remember that it was actually took place in November of 2020, but I want you to take what she shares in regards to how you build your reputation, how do you build your credibility so when challenges come, you as a leader can speak up and people believe you, trust you, and jump aboard and help you uh, achieve those great things to, that you need to achieve as an organization, as a people. And I also want you to think about all the, the information that she shares on the importance of having a voice, of, of, of being an effective public speaker as a leader. Well, I'm going to shut up now and we're going to get to this conversation. But as always, I want to hear your voice. I want to hear if you have questions that you have about your career or leadership or influence or networking. If you have those questions, connect with me. And I ask those questions to the people I interview. And you can connect with me by going to thealextrimbleshow.com, scrolling to the bottom of the page and joining our community. Once you enter your contact information there, you'll be joining our community of, of individuals wanting to do better and grow better and do not only things for our community, but also for our family, which is, you know, just be happy and, 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 and successful in our careers. Um, but once you enter in that group, you have the ability to then communicate with me and ask me questions that I can then ask to my guests. So without any further ado, Dr. Myshika Roberts. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble, and this is the Alex Trimble Show. And I'm so 
excited, as I am always, to be able to talk to a phenomenal energetic leader. Um, if you if you were paying attention to the other videos we've shown over the last few weeks, you may have been, uh, uh, noticed Troy, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, um, who's the CEO of TEDCO right now. Um, he then, after that phenomenal interview, he introduced me to a, a phenomenal, again, I keep saying phenomenal because I, I've, I've done my research, I read up about her, and she is she truly is a phenomenal leader. And so I'll, I'll just stop with all the um, uh, bringing everyone's emotions up right now and to say, it is wonderful to uh, be able to have you here today, um, Dr. Roberts. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. And Dr. Roberts, um, I will start off with uh, actually two softball questions, the one that's a truly softball question. Um, but as the health commissioner of the city of Columbus, what do you do? What does that mean? <laughs> what does it not mean at this point in time is probably a better question. Um, well, since March, really before March, I would say since February, I've been preparing my community for COVID-19. Um, and then helping my community and most importantly, really my staff respond um, and protect themselves from COVID-19. Um, most days, my work day, not when I wake up, but my work day starts at 7 a.m. Um, with conference calls. Um, and then I usually take about two calls before I get into the office at nine. And yes, my team has been working from the office since March. We never remoted in. Um, I think it's really important that if you're in response mode, like we are in public health, that we be present. Um, we found that we work really well when we're under one roof. Um, we do have some staff that are working remotely. We couldn't have all 500 people in the building. We just didn't have space for that. But the core of my staff are here in the building are actually coming into the office seven days a week. Um, we rotate. Not every not, you know, most people are not working seven days a week. We are all working five days, but we rotate. Um, and so I do everything from strategy, thinking what else we can do to protect our community, policy, working with our businesses, working with my mayor, working with my board of health, um, giving guidance, clinical guidance to um, hospitals. Um, giving clinical guidance to my team. My team is responsible for doing an interview on every single case of COVID-19 that is reported to our jurisdiction. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. yeah, the way you find out about cases and how many we have and what age they are and what they could have been exposed to is because of public health on the ground doing the interviews of every single case. And then not only do we have to interview the case, we have to find out who their close contacts are and contact them so that they can quarantine for 14 days so they don't further the spread of this virus in our community. So um, we have over 20,000 cases here in my jurisdiction and we have interviewed 20,000 individuals. Um, so it has been busy, it has been very busy, but my days are full talking to my staff, talking to community members, talking to elected officials, talking to the media. I do a lot of media interviews. I can't even tell you how many I've done, um, but uh, it's a little bit of everything Thing, from managing staff to managing expectations of the community. Well, so um, you, you have a lot on your plate. Um, so I guess where I like to start this conversation is you said something that made my ears perk up right in the beginning. You've been preparing since February. Um, that is not when things necessarily blew up, right? In, in the public, you know, we kind of think March-ish is when this thing's really popped off. And so I, I've spoken to some executive leaders who had the foresight to see 
what could happen and they started prepping for it and planning. And so I guess my first question is, how did you go about um, that, that planning and building up the, the support to do what you're going to need to do before everyone else knew it was going to be a thing? Like, how did you get other people to understand, hey, this is something we need to be thinking about? Yeah, so I was actually mistaken. We've been working on this since January. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have a great team here that all they do is emergency preparedness and they plan for that. And so we were, you know, initially charged, if you recall back in January, one of the responsibilities that was given to local public health is that we had to monitor individuals coming back from China. So individuals who came back from China, were their names were given to us if they lived in our jurisdiction. And we were charged with staying in touch with them for 14 days to monitor them to see if they had signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and to also encourage them to stay in place, to quarantine. So we've been doing that since January um, and that kept us pretty busy. And we thought that was going to you know, be the worst of it. Maybe we'd see a few cases here. I'll admit to you, I did not anticipate what we're dealing with now. It kind of hit me. Um, I remember the day I was actually in DC with health commissioners in a group called the Big Cities Health Coalition. It was the end of February. There was a press conference at the White House and one of the CDC associates, one of the CDC leaders told everyone, life as we, Americans were going to have to brace themselves because life as we knew it was going to change. And I remember my peers and I all looking around like, why'd they say that? What's going on, you know? and. Um, I ended up coming back, you know, I finished my conference. It was a two day conference. I came back to the office and I said, you know, we need to prepare ourselves. Something big is happening and we need to prepare ourselves. And so we got into a structure that um, is really modeled after fire departments called incident command structure, where there's an incident commander and there's operations chiefs. So we structured ourselves. We had done that before with Ebola. I really thought this was gonna be similar to Ebola, you know, where we'd see a few cases in the United States, but we'd be able to control it. Um, but we got an ICS and um, we have been in ICS since February of 2020. And I anticipate we're going to be in ICS for probably at least another seven to eight months. Well, when, when you got back and you realized this is something you wanted to plan for in ICS, um, what, when you started sharing this with colleagues who weren't at the conference or maybe who don't necessarily work in your line of, you know, of health, um, when you started sharing these ideas and these, look, we need to start prepping for this, did everyone immediately say, okay, yeah, we're on board, let's go. Um, or was it some convincing that needed to happen? And, and how did you do that? Well, believe it or not, within my organization, everyone got it. They got it and they were ready because we have this belief in public health. It's best to be ready, over-prepared than under-prepared. And so internally within my organization, everyone got it. I will say, you know, around the community, people were kind of like, oh, okay. You know, they didn't really quite understand it and get it. And at that point, it was really hard for me to convey why it was so important for us to be organized internally here. Um, but really, I think when people got it that this was serious was early March. Here in Columbus, Ohio, we have an event called the Arnold Festival. Um, the Arnold Festival is almost like a mini Olympics. Um, they have over 20,000 athletes coming from all around the country. They have tons of spectators coming in. 
And they had been planning for this. I mean, they planned for it a year in advance. And when we started hearing about um, COVID-19, we started reaching out to them and saying, you know, where are your athletes coming from? What are you doing to protect your athletes and your staff and all the visitors? And, you know, they assured us no one was coming from China. And then when Italy and other countries got added, they assured us no one was coming from those countries. And I got some feedback from the community, like we shouldn't have the Arnold here. It was, it was very small percentage of the community, but there were community members that were saying, Maybe we shouldn't have this here. And I kept reassuring them, we're working with the organizers. We have a great plan. And that event was supposed to really kick off officially on a Thursday. And I tell you, I woke up, Alex, on Monday morning of that same week. And I just had a gut feeling that this event should not happen. And I came into work. I actually text two of my colleagues who were in the incident command structure leading it. And I said, I think we should cancel the Arnold. And one of them tells the story great. He said, when I got your text, I spit out my coffee. Um, but short, the short story is I ended up calling the mayor's office. I called the state health director. And um, by Wednesday, we had made a decision that the Arnold was going to be drastically changed because of health safety, um, health precautions and safety of our community. And if you recall back in March, and a lot of people might not remember this, but in the United States, we had very limited capacity to test people. So my concern as was Dr. Amy Acton, the health director for the state was, if the virus comes into our community, we don't know if we'll be able to detect it because we yeah, can't yeah. test. So, you know, there's, there's a running theme throughout what, how, what you've shared thus far, I want to kind of pick up on, um, you were able, it seems like you were able to hear some great information while you're in DC, you brought it to your team. Your team was like, okay, let's, let's get on. Like you said, better be prepared than to not be prepared. Got going, um, stood the ICS. Um, you need to make a tough decision to, to cancel an annual event. Um, a huge annual a huge event annual that brings event. a lot of money to our city. Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, you, and you got it done. And so I guess my question is, how did you build up the, the trust, the respect that it takes to be able to make all these decisions and people not balk at it or say, nope, nope, sorry, it brings into way too much money. Let's, let's, let's keep it rolling. Like, how, how did you build up your, your reputation, I guess, in such a way that people believe you and trust you, trust you? You know, that's an excellent question. And, you know, this is a community that I've been working in for over 14 years. Um, I think I've always been a steady hand um, here in the community. I've never come to them screaming fire when there wasn't a fire. I've been very realistic. Um, I was able to support the decision I made based on science. It wasn't, oh, I have a gut feeling. It was truly on science and showing them examples of what we were seeing around the country. I mean, when I went to the mayor's office, I had facts and they, they, they charged me with coming back to with more facts. You know, has any other municipality ever canceled an event before because the Arnold, you know, in this time period, and I was able to show them there was a there was an event in Houston, a very large tech event in Houston that was supposed to occur the same week that had been canceled due to fears of COVID-19. So they, they, they didn't take my you know, recommendation lightly. They wanted some other support. Um, and I was fortunate to have a state health director who got it as well and understood. And so she was in my corner. Um, but I think coming to people with facts 
um, being very firm in, in my um, delivery of why it needed to be done. And the bottom line, talking about the health and well-being of our community, which does not have a price tag. You could not put a price tag on human lives. Now, now again, the, the people who are watching this are generally going to be uh, government employees looking to, um, to, to move up in their careers. They may be executive or want to be an executive and someone as such as yourself. And I, I would say the weight of, of saying, look, we need to cancel this event. I know it's gonna bring in a lot of money for our community, but it's, I just, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's worth the lives. Like that, that it seems like a heavy decision to make. Um, and I, have you had to make those decisions before? Like how do you build up, the, I guess, the strength and the courage, the competence to be able to make those, those types of big recommendations? I, I don't recall in my career ever making a decision that had that type of impact as that prior. Um, that was a tough one, um, but I went with my gut. Um, but I also went with what I was hearing and seeing around me, and I didn't want Columbus to make the news for the wrong reasons. You know, I was very, very fortunate that I have a mayor that I work for that I respect, and in turn, he respects me, and he was really able to look at the health and safety of our community over the tax dollars that we were going to lose as a result of this. Um, and then it just got worse after that when basically the country, you know, went on lockdown. We lost a lot of tax dollars. Um, so it was it was a heavy weight, but some of that weight was lifted when the mayor and the governor decided to be the face of that decision as opposed to making me the scapegoat. And, you know, I think that's a really big lesson for people in government positions is, you know, we're in government positions we were asked to serve in these roles. We didn't volunteer and run for office like our elected officials. And so I really commend our elected officials during this pandemic who have stepped up and have taken responsibility for the actions of our community, taking guidance from healthcare experts like myself, but taking the responsibility themselves because they're the elected officials. They're the people that everyone voted for. I just signed up for the job and to lend my expertise. And, and, and your expertise, and I'm going to kind of continue building on this, your expertise lies in more than just um, the, the city level. I mean, you've also worked at I guess, uh, the federal level, right? You actually worked for the CDC at some point. Um, I did. How, what, did that prepare you at all in, in dealing with this situation right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I worked for the CDC for two years. I actually did a training program called Epidemic Intelligence Service. Um, it stands for EIS. Um, it's a two-year program where they take physicians, dentists, PhDs, and they train them on hands-on public health work. And so I started working for CDC um, during this, doing this epidemiology um, fellowship, so to speak, right at the beginning of SARS. Um, so, you know, COVID is a form of SARS, is, an, is a cousin to the SARS virus. So um, I remember that. And during my two years at CDC, we got a lot of training with media, 
how to present to the media. We got a lot of training on giving presentations. But most importantly, the core of the program was understanding epidemiology and being able to connect the dots to see who was at risk and how to reduce the spread of an infection. So in my two years at CDC, I spent a lot of time doing outbreak investigations. And I actually traveled around the state of Ohio helping local health departments do outbreak investigations, really trying to solve the problem. Where were people exposed and then how do we stop that exposure, either shutting down the facility or shutting down the mechanisms where people can transmit the virus. So um, it definitely positioned me well to handle this um, pandemic that we're all living through right now. And, and, and thank you so much for sharing that. And again, you hit on something again, now this is the second time you mentioned it. You mentioned it right in the beginning and then you now mentioned again, so I want to kind of pick up on it. Um, you talked about in the beginning, all of the media um, time you've been spending with media over the last few months. And then you also talked about how in this training you were in, this, this cohort you were in, you got trained on um, speaking to the media. Um, can you speak to just how important it is to learn that skill as an executive leader, um, that is speaking with the media? Well, I think any public speaking is important as a leader. Um, so whether it's to the media, to your staff, to stakeholders, being a good speaker is important, just as important as being a good leader. Um, so, you know, the key that I always remember is to tell the truth, to be as transparent as possible, to project some sense of confidence, to not allow the media to, you know, find the gray area that you might be sharing, but to, to be real. And I, you know, I've been very transparent with the media here locally. We, we don't know. I mean, recently I had a press event with the mayor and our hospital chief medical officers, and I was very transparent with people. I said, we're at a critical stage. Our numbers are going up. We've used all the tools we have in the tool bag, short of doing another stay at home order. We did a mask order. Our numbers went down after the mask order. We did an early last call for all of our bars and restaurants. Our numbers went down after that. I'm out of tools, short of closing everything down. We are out of tools. So now it's up to the public to follow the rules, to wear the mask, to prevent those social gatherings, to not attend those social gatherings in order for us to drive these numbers back down. Thank you for tuning in to The Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. 
However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com courses networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code PODCASTFAMILY on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com courses networking. And now back to The Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. You, you, you know, um, again, these are really, actually, I want to stay on that, that the media component really quickly. I, I, I asked that question because, um, so I used to oversee um, the executive leadership development program for a cabinet level agency and um, in creating their programs and working with their candidate development program for their executive ranks, um, that was one thing that we thought me and my um, the executive I worked for thought was critical was intentionally putting these leaders in situations um, where they would need to answer a question that they weren't ready to answer by a quote unquote media outlet, um, mm-hmm. just all the way throughout the program, just randomly things. And we we felt it was important because yes, always it's important to to know how to public speak, um, but two, <clears throat> we. It feels, and this is not a political statement, but it feels like <clears throat> our media, again, they, they love s- sound bites, mm-hmm. and um, and we live in a in a world that can be very um, polarized, and so mm-hmm. you need to make sure that when you speak, you mean what you speak. Like you, the words that come mm-hmm. out your mouth are the words you want to come out your mouth, versus just saying something random and rambling. Okay, into I think you have out. to justify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I was reading a, a book uh, recently um, and it has some interviews from uh, Dr. Fauci, actually. And it is, is very, it's very enlightening. And, you know, one of the things he talked about is that, you know, earlier on, he knew that it could be a problem, um, a big problem. Um, but at the same time, he was cautious with saying how big of a problem, because he was worried that if he said it was too big of a problem and it didn't end up being that way, he would lose the trust of everyone. Um, did, did you have to struggle with that at all as you made your decision to, to go out there? Not, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't because when, particularly when we're talking about the Arnold, I knew it was an international festival. And at that time there were cases you know, all over the country, we really knew this. And we knew that locking down the borders or controlling what came in from China was not solving the problem. Um, so I felt comfortable with what I was saying then. I had no idea, you know, what was about to percolate and what we were gonna hear about. I mean, I think the day the Arnold was scheduled to start, if I'm not mistaken, might've been the same day that we started hearing about the outbreak in, um, the long-term care facility in Washington state. Um, so it was, you know, right around the same time. So 
at that point, clearly the virus had gotten to the United States, you know, had made its way to this long-term care facility in a suburb of Seattle, Washington. So um, I felt confident in the science that I had access to and the information I knew about in terms of how viruses spread. And, you know, and we always say that here in the United States, because we are so mobile, you know, really the whole world, because we can just get on a plane and be in one continent within a few hours, that, you know, you cannot stop the spread of a virus. And I mean, this pandemic has showed that. I mean, it's just put that on front street that we cannot control the spread of the virus because our worlds are just too intertwined, you know, between flying boats. I mean, what we saw on cruise ships was so disturbing. Um, we just can't separate it. It's very hard to stop the spread of something. Well, I mean, th now this takes me a different direction I was planning on going, but to that exact point, our world is so interconnected now. And, you know, I think leaders have to be much more intentional with understanding how complex things are and being maybe more proactive with having ties or relationships or having the ability to build relationships with different places, different countries, different, just because when something happens, you want to be able to connect to the right person. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel like, again, given the pandemic, and this will not be the, the last time something big like this happens, is this going to continue in the future or something different, something bigger? So, you know, does this change how you plan to work as a leader? Or do you, do you plan on growing, maybe focusing on certain different skills because of what has happened? Well, I mean, I think I'm I'm very fortunate because of a few different um, groups that I'm a part of that I have peers across the country that I can call on and say, how did you do this? So, for example, I, I know the health commissioner in Seattle King County. And so I was able to call on her and say, what did you do in these nursing homes um, and other municipalities? The same thing. Um, but really thinking about outside of the United States and how can I grow my relationships over there so I can understand, you know, when London or the United Kingdom is going to do something, I can learn from peers over there. So that's definitely something when the doors open up and the world opens up again, that I'd like to expand my horizons in that area. But you know, I think a, an important thing, it's definitely important to have connections now and the here and now, but we also really have to learn from our past. And you know, in some ways there was a blueprint for this pandemic and it's called the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, which, you know, was very similar to this. You know, at that time, we knew very little about the flu. It was a new strain of the flu. We didn't have a flu vaccine. Um, and they were challenged in the same way we're challenged right now. There were different states handling things differently, um, yet there was a war going on and people were um, traveling around the world. So um, I think it's important to learn from the here and now and to have connections and relationships to learn from and to lean on. But I also think we need to learn from our past as well. What worked well, what didn't. Well, referring back to your past now, um, I guess I have a quiz for you that I've been planning to throw at you. Um, uh -oh. Which coast is the best coast? <laughs> which coast is the best coast? <laughs> oh, that's tough. That's tough. You know? <laughs> I'm a Cali girl at heart. I grew up in California and stayed there till I finished college. But I think if I had to pick, I'd probably say the East Coast. I probably would say the East Coast. Yeah. T Tupac would be very sad right now. Um, I know. I know. 
I so I actually was I, I was born in uh, in Linwood, California. Spent most of my oh. life in uh, Long Beach, and then moved out to the desert. Um, so I see that you and I are basically kindred spirits. <laughs> kindred spirits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except yeah. you're a doctor, and I just wear a tie. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, can I ask you why? Why did you decide to? What made you, aside from school? stay over here versus move back to the West Coast or go somewhere else? Huh. So, you know, when I, I finished school um, at University of Maryland, that's where I did my um, medical school training. And then I did my residency there. And um, one of my best friends from college was living in DC. I had at that point, you know, had made a lot of connections and relationships with people on the East Coast. And you know, I found the East Coast much more attractive at that point in my life than the West Coast. First of all, the cost of living was a lot easier and better on the East Coast. Um, I love the way, you know, when I lived in Baltimore, you know, we could take the train to Philly, to New York, you know, you could really just move around a lot. You had two major cities between Baltimore and DC that you could um, entertain yourselves at. Um, so I, I just never really thought about leaving. I you know, my mom always says, she said, when you left California after college, I knew you weren't coming back. And I said, well, how did you know? She said, I just knew you weren't coming back. But I, I have to admit, other than, you know, I always tell people living outside of California, I miss California the most, probably January through April, when we have <laughs> really bad weather here in the Midwest and the East Coast. But I like the change of seasons that we have here. Um, I like the culture. Um I like the diversity um, and I, I'm very happy here and definitely the cost of living makes it an added bonus. Well, again, I'm, I'm like you, I've lived in Baltimore from California. Um, my, my entire half of my family's from Youngstown, Ohio. So I spent, I'm oh. out there all the time. Yeah. Um, so I, I may have to swing by when COVID <laughs> is over, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I, I guess I always appreciated just being from somewhere else, just because I, I, I understand how the California culture is. And I understand now a completely different culture because the East Coast is a different culture, um, though it's in America. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so I guess in regards to like culture and you know, diversity and um, what, have you, what have you found about um, diversity and the East Coast that was, I think, different from the West Coast, if I can just ask kind of a random question. So this will offend some of my Californians out there, but I think there's a different depth to the culture on the East Coast than there is on the West Coast. Um, on the West Coast, you see, I think, you know, a lot of Californians, um, American citizens, and then you see a large Latino population. But on the East Coast, it's Europeans, it's Latinos, it's Asians. You see the Asian Americans in the West Coast too. But it's just, to me, a, a, the diversity has a more depth to it. That's the best way I can describe it. It's just more depth. So, so then can I ask, I'm gonna make us one last term before we, are, are, we close our time together. Um, you are a leader of upwards 500 employees, 500 employees. Okay, that's, 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 a, good, that's a good number of people. That's a good number of people. Um, how do you, 
how did you get to a, a point where you felt comfortable leading a organization of 500 plus employees? I mean, a lot of leaders you know, are leading seven people or 30 people. You have 500 people who are looking to you for guidance, leadership, and vision. How did you, yeah, how, how do you feel comfortable? How do you feel comfortable doing that? And it, do you have any suggestions or advice for anyone who wants to at some level, at some point? So, so you know, I, when I took on the position, I never thought about, oh, I'm going to be leading 500 people. I thought about it, I'm leading an organization and I have employees that work for me. And oh, so it happens to be 500 employees. But I try to greet every employee like they're the only one. And I think I also have a really good um, span of control. So I've got three assistant health commissioners who work for me. And um, so not all 500 report to me directly, um, as you can imagine. But um, we have a great team here. And I believe in meeting people where they are and talking about the individual skills that they all have. Um, and not comparing them to others and just being human. You know, at the end of the day, these are all individuals that are part of a family. They have a family themselves. Um, they have a life outside of work. Um, I wanna do what's best for the organization and clearly what's best for the organization is also gonna help the health and safety of our community. And so I really try to um, engage the staff to understand what our core values are and what our mission is. And you know, I'm a true believer in, in I, I learned this very early in my career. I don't ask my staff to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. And I remind them of that all the time. And I, um, I model that behavior in front of them all the time. You know, I've gone on restaurant inspections. I've done vaccines before. I've done an STD exam right beside them. Um, when there's an emergency in the building and they're calling for people to come and maybe someone needs CPR, I'm there trying to help the team. So, I, you know, I, I wish I could be out and about more, but I have, you know, meetings and calls and things like that, that prevent me from being there all the time. And then with COVID, there's all this concern about how close are you to people? So that's a concern. But I think, you know, taking one employee at a time, modeling the behavior, not getting overwhelmed by the number of staff, but really focused on what the mission is of the agency and just realizing you've got a team of staff that help you um, achieve that mission. Well, I, I guess I'll ask you one last question and I want to open it up to you if you have any last final thoughts. Um, I, I recently published an article for um, the Association for Talent Development and it was focused on the, in, um, the importance of gaining power, gaining influence. Um, if you have power influence, then you can help do really good things. Um, and though I had a lot of very positive responses to that article, um, someone also mentioned that power changes you. They said, you know, regardless if you're a good person or bad person, power changes you. Um, and I, I guess I would agree to an extent. Um, how, do you believe that gaining the influence, gaining the position that you have now has changed you um, for the better or, or the worse? And then how do you keep yourself from moving over to the dark side, like Darth Vader. <laughs> so does power change you? I would say it can, um, but I have a husband and a sister who are constantly reminding me that, you know, I'm still Mashika at the end of the day. And yeah, you might be able to pull that at work, but you can't <laughs> pull that here. Um, so that really keeps me um, 
it keeps me humble, I would say. Um, and for me, I would say the, the thing that I have noticed about how power has changed me is I'm a public figure, especially during this pandemic. So I have to be really um, cognizant of what I do when I'm out in public, um, when I'm not working, when I'm doing my weekly errands or going to the grocery store, um, that anyone could be watching me. And you know, if I piss off someone in the parking lot and they wanted the parking spot that I took from them, you know, how they could get on social media and say, Dr. Roberts stole my parking spot at Kroger today, you know? So I, I think that part of me changes, you know, in terms of I'm just a little more reserved, a little more cognizant of when I'm going around town, whether I'm eating out, particularly before COVID, when I was doing more of that, or doing errands that, you know, I, I have, quote unquote, somewhat of an image to live up to. And I, 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 not to say that I'm phony, but I have to realize that people could take my actions in a different manner because of who I am. But I think, you know, power has not changed me um, in my relationships with friends or family um, or my relationship with my staff. I mean, I think if you ask any of my staff, particularly those who report directly to me, they will say that the Dr. Roberts or the Mashika that we see today is the same Mashika we saw five years ago. Th th thank you so much for sharing that. I'll just say really quickly, if, for those who are listening right now, you might remember this story already, but there is a monk who we go make donations to. Uh, my wife is Buddhist. And we we had got there really late at night because we had a long day, but we really wanted to make this donation. And when I that monk came down at like nine o'clock at night, I could see he was tired. Like he was really tired. Um, but he sat there, took the donations, did the blessings, and did what he had to do. And we sat by. And I, all I could think about is like leaders have to make those sacrifices sometimes. For the you know, they're, they're, it's not what they want to do. I don't think you want to have to be you know, paying attention or being that cognizant, but that's part of the, the cost of being the leader. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I appreciate you being willing to do that. Um, are, are, are there any final thoughts, ideas, suggestions you would share with anyone listening and or anyone who would like to progress as a public, uh, public servant? So, you know, I would just say, follow your dream, follow your passion. Um, when I went to med school, I used to tell everyone, my father's a physician, um, and I told my parents I wanted to be a physician, but I wanted to be different than my dad. And they didn't really understand what that meant at the time, and I didn't understand what that meant at the time either, really. I just didn't want to work nearly as hard as my dad did. Um, and I probably am working harder now, but that's another story. Um, but the HIV movement, and in the 80s and 90s really got me interested in public health. And um, I decided public health was what I wanted to do and started pursuing that. And um, just follow your passion, follow your passion. And, you know, I don't feel like I have a job. I love what I do every day. It doesn't feel like a job or a chore. I feel grateful that I'm getting paid to do this every single day. Um, so follow your passion, follow your dreams. They'll come true. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Roberts, for being here with us today. And thank you for everyone who is listening today. Again, if you appreciated what was shared, please click a like, subscribe, whatever there is around there, go on and click it and share it with someone with you, your friend, your colleague, your family member. Don't, if you think this is great, helpful information, don't keep it to yourself. Don't look back, reach back. Um, as always, this is Alex Trumbull um, from the Alex Trumbull Show. I'd like to say, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.
Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.